Welcome to the Aerospace Engineering Podcast. My name is Reiner Groh, Research Fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, and on this podcast I have conversations with aerospace pioneers about new technologies at the cutting edge of aerospace design and research. This episode of the Aerospace Engineering Podcast is brought to you by AnaliSwift. Do you work in the design and analysis of aerospace structures and materials? If so, AnaliSwift's innovative engineering software, SwiftComp, may be the solution you're seeking. Used either independently for virtual testing of aerospace composites or as a plugin to power conventional FEA codes, SwiftComp delivers the accuracy of 3D FEA in seconds instead of hours. A general purpose multi-scale modeling program, SwiftComp provides an efficient and accurate tool for modeling aerospace structures and materials featuring anisotropy and heterogeneity. SwiftCom quickly calculates the complete set of effective properties needed for use in macroscopic structural analysis. It also accurately predicts local stresses and strains in the microstructure for predicting strengths. Find out how others in composites are saving time while improving accuracy, considering more design options, and arriving at the best solution more quickly. A no-cost academic partner program is now available for eligible universities. For free trial, visit analyswift.com. SwiftComp. Write results right away. This episode is also sponsored by StressEbook.com, which is an online hub for you if you're interested in aerospace stress engineering. StressEbook.com provides world-class engineering services and online courses on the stress analysis of aircraft structures, as well as a free ebook and blog. No matter if you're a junior or senior structural analyst, StressEbook.com provides you with the skills and know-how to become a champion in your workplace. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Paul Withy is a professor of casting at the School of Metallurgy and Materials of the University of Birmingham in the UK. Before joining the University of Birmingham in 2018, Paul worked at Rolls-Royce for 21 years, developing new materials and manufacturing processes for gas turbine components. As an engineering associate fellow, Paul was a member of a select group of the top 100 specialist engineers across all engineering disciplines within Rolls-Royce. And in 2015, Paul and his team were awarded the highest technical award within Rolls-Royce, the Sir Henry Royce Award. Paul's particular expertise lies in investment casting of aerospace metals, especially of high-temperature superalloys used in the hot turbine stages of modern jet engines. Throughout his career at Rolls-Royce, Paul has developed and optimized manufacturing processes for single crystal turbine blades with a total of 14 patents to his name. Despite phenomenal advances in materials technology, a number of questions with regard to how the turbine blade shape, materials, and process parameters interact remain unanswered, and these questions form the basis of Paul's ongoing research. In this episode, Paul and I discuss the unique differences between research in academia and industry, what single crystal superalloys are and how they are manufactured, why single crystal superalloys are a critical technology for modern jet engines, and the research questions that Paul is currently trying to answer. 
So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Professor Paul Withy. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So Paul, before we start talking about your particular area of expertise, could you tell our listeners how you got into engineering, how your career has evolved since, and what you do today? My career in engineering probably was a bit more random than most. I, I started out with a first degree in physics, which was really the, the favourite of my A-levels. And it was driven by you know your favourite A-level, so you go and study that at university. Um, but during my degree, I ended up in, uh, having part of my time in the School of Metallurgy and Materials, learning about materials as part of my final year. And that led me to do a PhD in materials. And from there, I've kind of stayed in materials, although I've changed fields. I've gone from magnets for my PhD through fracture mechanics, and now I'm working in foundry um, foundry practice. I've, I've always kind of, there was some logic at the time, and it seems a bit random looking back on it, but I've enjoyed looking at a number of different materials and how the engineering works on that. And it's really where I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed my career. Right. And so you said you did, so you did a postdoc first, or you did a, a classic academic um, kind of educational, but you have a classic educational background, but then you started working for Rolls-Royce. So that was kind of a, your first touch point in, in, in industry. So what happened between starting at Rolls-Royce and you now being a professor at the University of Birmingham? Well, I, I joined Rolls-Royce more than 20 years ago, and I then worked down in Bristol at the Research Foundry. So I was still op operating on that kind of industry academia border, but developing technologies that were directly relevant to the manufacturing processes that Rolls-Royce had. Um, that facility was closed in the 2000s, and I've moved up to Derby then, and I, I still remained focused on Rolls-Royce casting research. And so I've been involved in the development of casting research and the development of casting processes for some fairly complex alloys and materials for the last 20 years before joining Birmingham as a professor. Great. So, of course, because you have this background both in industry and in academia, you've got the very you know unique insight into how the two research environments differ. So could you give a, perhaps an example or just give an, an overview of how those two environments conduct research differently and how they can perhaps work together in, in, in the best way? Because I, I know from my personal experience that Rolls-Royce, in my opinion, has, has a great kind of strategy in terms of combining industrial research and university research. Yeah, I think I, I've enjoyed the working across both sides. And you're right, there are differences between them. The, the industrial approach to research is it has to have some kind of end product. You don't tend to find true blue skies research in a novel field as much. Although there's still some scope for some blue skies research and Rolls-Royce itself has a portfolio of research projects from very blue sky all the way through to very, very near-term focused problem solving. The benefit of academia, I guess, is that you can be blue skies across the whole board. And if you, if you decide to wander off in a different direction, then as long as you can get a funding body to back you, then you can do that. And so there's a, probably a little more freedom, certainly over time scales and direction. But I've enjoyed the fact that my research tends to have a, a, a deliverable, a drive, a kind of focus that means that there is something to look forward to as a target. And I've enjoyed the, the focus of that in the research as well. So working with Rolls-Royce, even when I'm in academia, there is always that focus, you know, how do you meet the requirements of the company? 
and Rolls-Royce does rely on its research providers, its partners, and it's a long-term partnership that it develops with its UTCs, its university technology centres, that allows it to have this long-term focus and use academics through their career to actually develop this technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess so. I think so. You're currently at the University of Birmingham, and you said before we started recording that you basically work on technology readiness level one to three, which is kind of the, the, the lower grade. So we would, we would consider that more blue sky research. But then how does how does that research then feed back into, into Rolls-Royce? How does the research from the university feed back into the industry? Yeah, so we've got the blue skies work at Birmingham, but we've also got something called the High Temperature Research Centre, which is a partnership between Birmingham and Rolls-Royce and Hefke. And as a kind of as an organisation that developed or takes technology at low readiness levels and brings it through to production readiness. So the HTRC is a focused single crystal facility, but it's got the whole sweep of processes as a production facility, but it allows us to do technology development through to the point where we can deploy it in a production facility without having to develop something that upsets the production facility by being off the wall or out of kilter with what it's doing. Right. Okay, so your expertise is in processing of uh, aerospace metals and uh, especially in casting of nickel-based superalloys. Yep. So let's start with a really basic question okay. to begin with. So what are superalloys and how does the manufacturing method that we choose determine the quality of the material and also its properties? Right. Let's see if I can remember all of those. Um, superalloys, it's the name given to a class of materials and it's, it's been around for many decades now, and it describes the ability of a, a, a set of alloys to hold their strength up to very high percentages of their melting point. So in the case of nickel, we've got these nickel-based superalloys, which can run up to probably about 1150 degrees C um, in, in service. They've got a lovely feature where they tend to get a little bit stronger towards the top end before dropping off completely, but that's about 80% of their melting point. So it's it, they retain their strength and their usable kind of features up to high temperature, hence superalloys. The key thing about superalloys is that they are very difficult to form. Um, the standard ones that have been used for many years, they, they were quite difficult to, to shape. And so casting was used at a very early stage to actually get them to be the right shapes, especially as turbine blades, um, especially high pressure turbine blades, went for internal cooling, which means that you've got an internal structure and an external shape that you're trying to achieve. And investment casting has been seen as the way to drive those kind of difficult internal features as well as the externals. And as we've gone from equiax, so polycrystalline materials, take a mold, pour the metal in, let it cool. And we've gone on to directionally solidified materials in the 1970s and 80s and then single crystals coming in in the late 80s through the 90s. We've started to focus on the crystal structure and just take out grain boundaries and actually focus on using casting to grow single crystal blades. Right. Okay, and so so you've you've mentioned this term, the, the single crystal blade. Why would Rolls Royce be interested in a single crystal blade? What is their design driver that they need the single crystal? Okay, I was describing an equiax component as being polycrystalline, so you just could take a mold and pour the metal in. And quite early on, it was realised that at high temperatures and high loadings, that those those metals would creep, if fatigue in some cases but it was usually the deformation around grain boundaries that was causing most of the grief. So it's, it's like if you take a sugar cube 
and you take a sugar cube at room temperature and you crush it, you don't necessarily break the individual grains of sugar. You're actually breaking the, the little grains apart and turning it back to sugar dust. Mm -hmm. And so what, what you're actually then saying was, if I can tune those grain boundaries, I can make my, my components stronger out of a similar material. And it was developed in the late 1960s where they looked at directionally solidifying the components. So the grains were much bigger and aligned in the direction of maximum stress. So the stress was along the grain boundary, not perpendicular to it. So you took out some of the influence of grain boundaries. But you still put elements in, hafnium, carbon, things like that, to strengthen the grain boundaries. And so people said, well, could we get rid of the grain boundaries and make it a single crystal? No grain boundaries. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And it, it was developed, or thought of really as a kind of concept in the 1960s. The, patent, the early patents were in the late 1960s. Didn't really get into, it was into production until the 19, late 80s, early 90s, just because it's not that straightforward. But we are growing single crystals that are tens of centimeters in size. Right. Okay. So you just said that it's not so simple, and that in fact the idea has been around since the the nineteen sixties. But I think it it only really came into into full production in the nineteen eighties. So, why? How do you then? Gr you said growing a single crystal. How do you grow a, a single crystal? Is is kind of an analogy to nature apt in this case that there's kind of like a tree that is growing? How, how does this process work? Um, Right. The, there are two ways of doing it. And the first thing is you could have a seed of a single crystal and you could melt back part of the seed and then epitaxially grow off that seed layer by layer. And so as you take a mold, fill it full of molten metal and you withdraw that mold from a hot zone in the furnace to a cold zone. And by moving it, you then move the solidification front slowly through the metal. You actually encourage the atoms to align as they, as they um, solidify. If you do it slowly enough, you can you can grow a single crystal. If you start with a seed at the base, it grows in that the same orientation as the seed. That's one way of doing it. The other way is to allow a number of directionally solidified grains to grow off the equiax of an equiax melt pool, and you just grow a few directionally solidified grains, and then use what's called a pigtail or a selector to actually pick one grain mechanically, and then allow that to grow through. But it's exactly the same. You control the solidification. You slow it down enough. And there's about 10 to the 24 atoms in a single crystal blade, which is quite a few. And you're trying to persuade 10 to the 24 atoms to actually all align through the whole of the component. So you have to solidify over hours rather than seconds. Right. Okay. So 10 to the 24 atoms, it does basically, it's well, it's first off, yeah, a lot of atoms. But then in terms of time, how how is it possible to then upscale this manufacturing process so that it works economically uh, in industry is it just a matter how i mean how many of these blades is rolls-royce growing on a on a day-to-day -day basis um rolls-royce's main facility will be making thousands in a week wow um and that's just because i mean you, you look at the numbers every high pressure turbine blade every intermittent immediate pressure turbine blade for the large civil engines in Rolls-Royce are all single crystals and all of them have to be manufactured and then machined coated um, film cooling holes put in. So the whole manufacturing process is set up around a large volume manufacturing process. In aerospace terms, large volume. If it was automotive, they'd look at bigger numbers still. But they are grown. It takes a couple of hours to grow a single crystal blade. So you just have a lot of furnaces doing a lot of work. Right. So it's paralyzation, basically. Paralyzation. That's how you do it economically. A lot of number of blades on a mold. So you're doing more than one in the furnace at a time. And then paralyzation across uh, 
a number of furnaces. Great. Um, and then, so what are the factors at play in better understanding how the the single crystal forms? Because obviously your main research focus is optimizing, understanding this process better. So could you describe, you know, how does the material and the way it handles the shape that you want to get at the end and the manufacturing process, how do they kind of interact to then influence the end product that you then have on your tool? Yes, lots of interaction between them. The alloys themselves are very complex. We call them nickel-based superalloys. They contain 65% nickel and the rest of it is probably made up of eight or nine other elements, ranging in melting point from aluminium, a few hundred degrees to rheniums and tungstens and tantalums. So you've got a massive spread of melting points. So your, your process has to be able to solidify wide ranging materials in terms of melting points, in terms of densities. You get density differences as you try and solidify. So you've got to be able to control all of that as you solidify. You've got to be able to understand the process. Process modeling is a great help here and that's come in in the last few years. So understanding the solidification of these materials. They're complex shapes. If they were round bars, it would be a lot easier to get a single crystal to grow very quickly and very easily, but they're not. They're shaped like a turbine blade because you don't want to machine off a lot of material. So you're constantly going to be thinking, well, to make it as close to shape as I, I can, they've got corners, they've got platforms, they've got overhangs, all things that are not easy to grow round. So how do I persuade my crystal to stay as one single crystal while I'm taking it round corners and onto overhangs and all sorts? And it's understanding how you're going to solidify that part, what rates you're going to use, how you're going to make sure that it stays dimensionally stable. How do you contain the metal? Because it's held at 1500 degrees C before it solidifies up to a couple of hours maybe. So your shell systems that you're using to contain it have to be able to survive that as well without bulging and changing the shape. So there's lots of work to be done. And the more complex the alloys, the more high temperature alloys that we look to in the future, the harder it will be to contain them, to work them, to, to just make, make sure they stay in the right place. Right. And in terms of the, the split of the research, because so you just mentioned modeling work, yep. how, how do you, is there a clear split between modeling and experimental work? Or do you nowadays, do you mostly do some, some experimentation on the computer and then you try to see how it works out in practice? How do the two kind of combine to drive the research forward? If, if I was looking at not necessarily research, but looking at a new product or a new shape, then you would start off with process modeling every time. And then you would process model and then you would go and try it out in the foundry. Research, it depends what you're researching. Is it a certification process that you're looking to see if there is some clue from the process modeling? Or am I looking to form a defect or am I looking at something that's going to, where I'm going to do a more metallurgical examination, in which case I will just try and form whatever I'm trying to get. So there may be less process modeling up front of grain boundaries and the nature of grain boundaries compared to or how grain boundaries are formed. And so you, depending on what the project is, depends on which you'll pull first. But there's a lot of process modeling that needs to be done to understand the whole process. Right, great. So what do you currently focus on in your research? What's the one burning question or maybe multiple burning questions that you're currently trying um, to uh, to address? There are a number of questions. And if, if you said that I was the TRL one to three person in this the, the setup and Professor Nick Green at HDRC take, takes things on, I'm interested in phases that form in single crystal alloys, topologically close packed phases, which are defect phases that form in some of our um, high temperature alloys and understanding how they form during the manufacturing process, which isn't a place that we normally see them. Um, understanding grain boundary defects, but then 
difficult to cast alloys, novel alloys. How do we make novel alloys? How, what does that mean for the solidification parameters? And it's things like that. And it's across a broad front. I don't have one particular project. I've got a number of projects. So it's everything from alloy design all the way back to understanding the defects that we've got in the alloys. We've been using them for years, but not necessarily looked at them. Yeah, so so that that kind of question of you've been using them for years, and to me as an outsider, it looks like casting technology has already evolved by leaps and bounds from, as you said before, equiaxed uh, grains to now having single crystals. So the kind of outsider question that I have on my mind is, what are the, the, the general questions that still remain? What are the, 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 the leaps that we can still make to yeah. further optimize the system? I think... In terms of the casting process, it, there is probably limited leaps that we'll make in terms of nickel-based superalloys. There'll be developments of nickel-based and we'll be using the same manufacturing processes or tweaks of it to get to the same game. But as we look at what comes after nickel, if it's not ceramic matrix composites, which are one of the possible solutions, then there's other um, niobium silicides or, or other types of material, other non-nickel-based superalloys, that are being talked about as being at the other end of the spectrum. And how do you form those other alloys into the right shape? How do they solidify? How, what defects do you get? What do you need to do to make them manufacturable? So depending on what some of the more kind of elemental studies in terms of new alloy development throw up, I think we'll tune how casting develops if that's the method of producing those parts going forward. Right. So it sounds like the kind of, I, I, sometimes it's called a revolution that we've seen in terms of going from metal structures on an airframe, for example, yeah. from metal to composite, you might have a similar revolution in the high temperature uh, turbine stages where you go from an alloy to perhaps a composite material or something I, like I that. I think we're seeing part the start of that, certainly with the ceramic matrix composites being brought in for the static components. I think it will be a number of years before we trust them enough for the rotating components and whether they give enough benefit risk versus reward whether you get enough benefit from the light weighting in terms of performance increase by putting a ceramic in there we still have to manage the heat in the turbine blade and they're operating in gas streams of 1900k so if if we put a ceramic in there we still may have to cool it and thermodynamically that's a bigger challenge than it is with the metal which conducts heat rather well so I'm going to be very interested to see how that evolves going forward or whether something else comes along and says, actually, this is the new material that's got slightly different properties to nickel, can go to higher temperatures. We don't need to cool it as much, but we can take the heat out through um, other methods. And I think how the architecture evolves will be very interesting. Right. So it sounds like a lot of the times we, we think we have a solution, but then there's always these secondary effects. Yes. And then there's that complex interplay between all these factors to try to find the global optimum. And that's all very much so very difficult problem. And I, I think that we'll end up seeing that components, certainly towards the hot end of the engine, will start to become more composite in nature, probably as we mix different materials to achieve the properties we want on that part of the component. So rather than saying, I've got a component and it weighs six kilos or whatever a nozzle guide vane weighs and, it, and I'm going to make it out of one material, we might be saying, well, can we make it out of a number of different materials? Because this part of it has to have these properties and this part, different mix. And it's how we then pull that together. So whether there's things like that coming along and 
ceramic matrix composites are trying to drive us towards that's that's fine for that bit but is there going to be a cmc nickel composite component maybe that is the optimum mm -hmm. right very fascinating sounds sounds absolutely yeah fascinating so maybe just as a as a final question could you describe perhaps a technology that you worked on while you were in industry i mean you, you spoke about 21 years at rolls royce what is uh, a bit of technology that is flying today that you're particularly proud of i think there's a couple there's there's one that isn't flying today, but I, I developed, or helped develop as part of the team, the casting technology for a very reactive alloy. And we managed to get it net shape and get it right right the way through. And that was very pleasing. And that, that, that took us a number of years. Um, but to get to the place where we, we saw that go from a good idea right the way through to making parts and testing them. But in terms of I think it was just before I left Rolls-Royce, I was looking at some of the manufacturing technology that we use in our foundries. And I realized that there was one particular feature on the molds that go through that I introduced back in the late 90s. And it's still there today. So it's on the mold. And every um, Rolls-Royce engine that's been manufactured since then has gone through this process and seen this feature in use. And because of that, I, I kind of it means that I've influenced the manufacture of every large civil engine that's currently flying from Rolls-Royce and hopefully for a number of years to come. But that was a very proud moment when I realized that I'd, I'd, I'd managed to touch it enough to actually make a difference across a number of different fleet right. components. It almost sounds like you there was an evolutionary step and every further design had to be based on well, that one idea. That well, it, it, was, it was actually the part of the design of the casting mold that you pour metal into. Okay. So every time the metal is or every time that mold is used that's that feature is in play and because of that it's in it, you know i know that i've influenced the manufacture of all those components yeah great and so so you just mentioned something about some of your the, the designs that you were proud of not making it perhaps onto an engine what not, is not yet or not yet what is the um i'm just curious what is the percentage in terms of you come up with an idea, you, you, know, you, you work on a research idea for quite a long time, sometimes years, and then for some reason or other, it could be technical, could be economical, it doesn't make it on to a, a final product. Um, how often does that happen? Quite often, but then quite often is probably a third of the time, something like that, where you'd have a project that just doesn't get, get through or, or gets killed off. But that's, in some senses... I think there was an acceptance that you try and get to that fail fast, move on regime, because what you don't want to do is not start because you're worried about the, the impact. Certainly that was my experience in Rolls-Royce. I guess in academia, there's more freedom to do the, well, I'll have a really, really strange idea. Whereas at least in Rolls-Royce, you, you would be more channeled. There was a process in place to make sure that at least it had a, some chance of at least getting to that end game. And reasons for failure are many. Some are technical, some are cost, some are, the, the world changes. As the engine designs change, then the, the drive within the engine for various technologies moves on. And so it's just, you know, they, there could be many reasons for it not quite getting there. But it's just a case of being flexible enough to say, well, if it doesn't work there, is there another place? And, and what can I use? And what, because often a technology development program throws up other good ideas that you then can follow up in other areas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. I mean, in the field of research and innovation, to be able to innovate at all, you have to at least try something entirely not entirely different but something 
new that you think can make a make a difference and yeah. then the, the factors can often be complex in determining if that actually right. makes it but trying is yeah. definitely the, the initial step and yeah. i think going back to one of your earlier questions about the roles we set up with universities is that the utc arrangement means that if there is a crazy idea that looks like it might be you know have some life in it it can go back to the university to evaluate and depending on the nature of the project rolls-royce could ask for something basic to go in through um, responsive mode funding through EPSRC if it's you know real blue sky stuff and Rolls-Royce will start to fund it more heavily if it looks like it's even vaguely close but you've got that range of funding opportunities that means that the company doesn't have to put in all of the, its own money for really weird ideas. Right right well Paul it's been a delight to talk to you today uh, thank you very much for a fascinating conversation. Thank you. If you would like to learn more about Paul's research and single crystal super alloys then head over to airspaceengineeringblog.com forward slash podcast, where you will find show notes about everything we discussed in today's episode. And if you enjoy the Airspace Engineering Podcast, then there are a number of ways you can support it. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're tuning in. You can share it on social media with your friends and family, or you can support the podcast directly on Patreon, where patrons receive exclusive behind-the-scenes content and special episodes. And with that, thank you very much for listening and talk to you next time.